Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. We've talked before about whether Donald Trump's trade wars could have any winners. In fact, we're going to get an update later on one of them, Vietnam. But one clear loser has been Spanish olive farmers. Their exports to the US were hit with a big tariff last year. You probably didn't hear about it over all the talk about trade wars with China and Mexico, but it was very big news in southern Spain. Farmers there are hurting from the tariff, but Europe's aluminium industry is having a bumper year despite or even because of US tariffs in their sector. Later on, I'm going to be discussing the many unintended consequences of Trump's trade wars with Bloomberg's trade czar, Brendan Murray. I'll also be asking economics executive editor Simon Kennedy how we should feel about the political pressure being piled onto US Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell and many other central banks. But first, Jeanette Newman from Bloomberg's Madrid Bureau has this taste of southern Spain. This is a bar and restaurant in southern Spain. It's a local favorite called Casa Pedro. About 20 ham legs hang on a wall behind the bar. Beneath the jamón, a large earthenware pot is filled with olives, which the waiters scoop out and serve with a glass of beer or wine. The restaurant is in an agricultural town called Puente Genil, with a population of 30,000. While I wait to meet the farmer I'll be interviewing, I start talking with three men sitting nearby and ask them what they think about the American tariffs on Spanish olives. One of them is Jose Amador Romero, a man in his late 60s who grew up here. It's clear from our chat that the tariffs are economically harmful. And they're also an affront to a product that's a symbol of the region and its culture. Here in Andalusia, there are a lot of areas where olives are the most important agricultural product above everything else. And also our culture revolves around the olive. It generates a lot of work to harvest and produce and later consume. I meet the farmer, Jose Luis Robles. He says Trump's tariffs have caused his profits to plunge by about one-third. But for a loser in the international trade wars, he certainly looks upbeat. He's 37 years old and tall, 
with a sunny personality and easy smile. Uh, there, there is a factory. Yeah. Uh, we have. Uh, is that the ole, oleo estepa? Oleo estepa no. is for olive oil. Uh, we head to his farm, driving through southern Spain's endless horizon of olive trees. Olives are a huge industry in Spain. The country is the world's top exporter of olive oil and olives. But for years, the olive industry in California accused Spanish growers of selling on the cheap to win market share in the U.S. Their complaints largely fell on deaf ears. Until President Donald Trump. Tariffs. Tremendous tariffs. tariffs. Major tariffs. Very, very high tariffs. Extremely high tariffs. Tremendously high tariffs. His administration slapped a 35% tariff on black Spanish table olives in August 2018. We're talking about the black olives that Americans love on their pizzas, salads, and nachos. Washington accused the table olive industry of getting unfair subsidies from the Spanish government and the European Union. Spanish olive growers like Jose Luis were furious. They say the U.S. is just trying to undermine a competitor. No. You talk with your Everybody friends. more than depressed are angry because they say, why for us? What we have to do bad? Offer a cheap product? Why? Only for the USA? If it's to Russia, okay, I understand they are communists, or if, if we are to China, but to China, but for the USA, what we have to do bad? Offer a good product with good price? European officials have taken the tariff case to the World Trade Organization. But while that case slowly works its way through the courts, Jose Luis and other farmers have seen their profits plummet. U.S. imports of Spanish table olives have fallen by around 45% since the tariffs were put in place. U.S. buyers have turned to other countries, like Morocco and Egypt, to fill the void. Despite his frustration, Jose Luis remains hopeful that the executives at the cooperative that buys his olives will eventually find new export markets beyond the U.S., or that the tariffs will be lifted. As we drive on dirt roads through his olive groves, Jose Luis tells me he can't do much to cut costs. He has to keep pruning and tending his trees. Otherwise, they won't produce as many olives in the future. If the tariffs remain in place for several more years, though, Jose Luis says he will have to replace his olive trees with other crops. But if you had to move to almond trees or walnut trees, that would mean ripping up by the roots these olive trees yes, that have been course. on your farm for 40 years. Yes, but this is a pity, but at the end, the pity doesn't, doesn't feed my family. It doesn't pay the bills. Yes, of yeah. course. Spanish olive growers are also worried whether these tariffs are the end of Trump's trade war with Spain or just the beginning. I met Gabriel Trenzado, head of research for a Spanish agricultural cooperative group at his offices back in Madrid. Earlier this year, the Trump administration said the EU was unfairly subsidizing Airbus, the maker of big jets for many airlines. The administration threatened to retaliate by hiking tariffs on all kinds of European exports, such as, you guessed it, olive oil and all different kinds of olives, not just table olives. We don't know exactly how Trump is going to react on that, because he has said a lot of things, but now he is doing those things he has said two years ago. So, um, of course, marketing will continue, but uh, with one of the bigger, let's say, players in the world out of the rules. So the uncertainty is quite big for the time being. So tariffs are bad news for Spain's olive producers, which President Trump might say is good news for American olive growers. 
But what's happening in the European aluminum market shows that in tariff battles, it's not always so clear-cut who will be the loser and who will be the winner. Trump also slapped tariffs on aluminum imports from Europe. But instead of crushing profits, business with the U.S. is booming. What's going on? It's a bit complicated. I spoke with Gert Gertz, Director General of European Aluminum, an industry association in Brussels, about the tariffs. First question, did they negatively affect the European aluminum trade in 2018? The answer is, uh, maybe surprising, no. Um, and, and why is it? Um, because the export um, to the U.S. did not stop, as the U.S. Um, did not and does not have uh, enough domestic production for the time being uh, to satisfy the demand. So therefore continued to import aluminium from, from Europe, but, but also from other regions, um, despite tariffs. It turns out that European exporters benefited because aluminum from China, another big producer, was also being hit by Trump tariffs. And the Chinese aluminum had become even more expensive than the metal from Europe. So American demand for European aluminum surged, tariffs and all. But the Chinese pivoted and began to sell their products in Europe. That's driven down prices in Europe. So the good times might not last. In the short term, it, it, it may be helpful. And there are some uh, companies that uh, have, a, have a nice extra market. Um, but on the midterm, long term, um, this will change. Uh, and we need to come back to, to a level playing field. Both the winners and losers of Trump's trade battle say they have learned a similar lesson. Washington isn't a reliable partner. Tomás García Escarate, an agricultural economist in Madrid, tells a story about how even short-term trade spats can have long-term and unforeseen consequences. In the 1970s, the U.S. was the world's main producer of soybeans. When a sudden shift in the market in 1973 caused prices to surge, the U.S. reacted by putting in place a temporary ban on its soybean exports. Even though the ban was short-lived, countries that relied on American exports were angry that, suddenly, they couldn't buy the soybeans they needed. America's trading partners learned an important lesson, Garcia Escarate says, and took steps to make sure that their businesses wouldn't be thrown into turmoil again by a surprise U.S. export ban. All the rest of the world understood that the Americans were not reliable. What the what the rest of the world have done, the Japanese, for instance, look at where, where could I found another place to produce soy? And they discover that in, in Latin America, in, in Brazil, in Argentina, in Uruguay, in, there were a wonderful place where, where they could, they could plant soya. And well, they finance the development of the soya industry in all Latin America. And today, Latin America is a major player of the soya market. So, little by little, over the next couple decades, America began to lose its near-monopoly status in the soybean market. Economists say we can also expect the tariffs on Spanish table olives and European aluminum to have unexpected effects in those markets. So while it seems like the tariff battles have already been dragging on for a long time, it's fair to expect that Trump's trade policies are going to ripple through the world in surprising ways for decades to come. Trade is based on confidence. You are reliable. I rely on you, you rely on me, I import from you, you import from me. There is rules, we respect the rules, we don't change the rules, we understand it together and so on. As soon as you start changing the rules, this 
will have consequences. For Bloomberg News, I'm Jeanette Newman. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So the lesson of that report is the start of a trade war, it strikes me, is a lot easier to predict than the end. And if you decide to punish your trading partners for relying on your goods, well, then you shouldn't be surprised if they try very hard to avoid being in that position again. So I wanted to broaden the discussion a bit, and I've called in Brendan Murray, Bloomberg's trade czar, who we've spoken to before. He has the job of pulling together everything that's happening around the world with Donald Trump's trade wars, although We'll hear a bit later. It's not just Donald Trump who's been waging trade wars recently. Um, And I should say we're doing this by phone, so the quality might not be up to our usual standards. Um, Brendan, thank you very much uh, for doing this. Um, Just remind me, we heard there from some Spanish producers and how they've been affected in different ways um, by American tariffs. But that's olives and aluminium. But there are other threats that President Trump has made which haven't gone anywhere yet uh, on autos, for example. What's the state of play when it comes to the White House versus Europe? Right. So the U.S. and uh, the European uh, trade negotiators haven't even really started their talks yet. They're basically at a stalemate before the uh, before they've even started. Uh, the, the U.S. wants agriculture to be part of the, the part of, part of the discussions, and, and Europe is saying no way. Not we're not negotiating on on, on on the agriculture industry. So what the what the Trump administration has as le- as leverage over Europeans is the threat of auto tariffs. Now this is basically the nuclear option when uh, you're considering. Uh, the, the German economy, the French economy, the UK economy, all tied into it to a great uh, extent to manufacturing automobiles in particular. So this is the the big unknown, and a lot of economists are would expect the economic effects of that to be to be fairly widespread and painful for for both Europe and the U.S. Really, and we've had yeah the economy our economists have gone into uh, in in great detail, particularly how. How German companies uh, could be affected, but it does seem like it, it, the the president is wary of of pressing that nuclear button. I mean, those tariffs have been delayed quite a few times now. They have, and and they're still they still could be a couple months off yet. Uh, but he's 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 uh, he's made a lot of threats with uh, with with these big kinds of tariff uh, moves and not followed through. So they, so there's no guarantee, but uh, it definitely is the big uncertainty hanging over. Uh, really, the European manufacturing industries and and the U.S. Uh, manufacturers as well. And we were, uh, as we pulled together some of the stories for this chat, I realised that we could probably have an entire series of podcasts devoted to the unintended consequences of trade wars. Um, but one I was very struck with, um, moving away from Europe for a second, is we heard a bit about the aluminium or aluminium uh, story there from the standpoint of Spain. But I was struck by a, a story we had that the, the, the tariffs, the U.S. tariffs, seem to have actually speeded up the decline of some of these old steel mills in the U.S., which Donald Trump was saying he wanted to help. How, how does that work, Brendan? How is it that, that the inefficient steel 
manufacturers in the U.S. have actually been damaged by tariffs? Well, what we're finding out is that trade wars really create winners and losers. And it's if you're if you're directing tariffs at an industry as specific as steel, uh, you know, it, you're going to create winners and losers within that industry. Not just you're not going to save the whole industry. So, so the weak ones uh, have uh, have have gone out of business essentially, and and those jobs have gone away. And some of them have. Uh, the bigger, stronger ones have survived and, and hired people. But uh, the net effect seems to be uh, kind of a wash when you look at, uh, you know, the overall attempt to revive the American steel industry. It's, it's, uh, it's not a widespread success. And I was really struck by this because I guess the dynamic is that uh, the tariffs encouraged uh, U.S. producers to crank up production. But at the same time as actually we then saw global demand fall off. So the price fell. So the old steel mills that were not very profitable, even at the higher prices, and they're now going faster out of business, even the ones that, that Donald Trump might, might have stood up in and said, oh, I'm going to save those, uh, those jobs. Well, I was very struck that the US, US Steel Inc. has lost 70% of its value since the tariffs were announced. I mean, that is not really sounding like the Donald Trump playbook. Yeah, when you start messing around with the this, the forces of supply and demand like that, you never really know what's how the outcome is going to be, and I think that's that's definitely played out in the, in the American steel industry. It, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, of course, Pennsylvania and Ohio are big are big states where you know Donald Trump uh, depends on his political support, and these are also big places where where steel is, is is manufactured. So it'll be interesting to see if the if that you know those kind of uh, muted. Uh, outcomes that he's seen, uh, you know, play play into into the outcomes that yeah. he sees on election day. No, I think that's right. So that's what one thing that economists always say about trade wars uh, that you can have unintended consequences. Probably the other thing that's the most common thing that economists say is that there is no, there are no winners in trade wars, uh, only losers. But we should we tried to tell the podcast listeners a few months ago that there was a winner from uh, Donald Trump's trade wars with China, which was Vietnam, and we had a very interesting piece about how Vietnam producers were were benefiting from having some production uh, pushed their way uh, by by the tariffs against uh, China, people trying to get around the tariffs. Now, of course, it turns out that they're also going to be slapped with tariffs by President Trump. So what, the White House noticed that Vietnam was doing quite well out of these tariffs? Well, that's what the, what the White House does uh, is notice trade surpluses. And Vietnam's uh, swelled to uh, levels that got it noticed for all the wrong reasons, really. Uh, and uh, the Commerce Department recently just put tariffs on certain Vietnamese products that it uh, suspected were being redirected from uh, places like South Korea and Taiwan and trying to get around the tariffs uh, in, in China to the to the disadvantage of, of U.S. industry. So, uh, yeah, Vietnam, you know, had its had its run there as a winner, but uh, it quickly got uh, got a wake up call that um, you know the U.S. is watching and it, and it watches trade surpluses. And, and Vietnam's had swelled quite a good amount. And I was quite struck. I mean, this is one of those things where on the Bloomberg terminal you have these amazingly named functions, like it's one called Ahoy, which tracks all of the big container ships traveling across the world and what's inside them and where are they going. And we had, uh, through one of those functions and something else, we'd spotted that there was, a, what was it? It was a 600 and, 656% jump in solar cell imports uh, from to the U.S. from Vietnam relative to a year ago. Basically, it looks like a lot of the solar cells that were coming in from China have just started going via Vietnam. I mean, we're not completely sure, but that's what it looks like. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the other industries that we've seen uh, affected a lot is is electronics, and and uh, you know, the countries like Taiwan and South Korea are really uh, disproportionately damaged in in situations like this. So the trade war is uh, is really creating a lot of distortions and and redirecting flows that uh, you know have been in place for years, and particularly in Asia, where supply chains are so inter integrated. So there's a there's a lot of interesting things playing out right now, and like you said at the outset, it's really too uh, it's very difficult to predict where this is going. And I guess we shouldn't end before mentioning that there's a whole other trade war that's that started in the last uh, in the last few days or last week um, between Korea and Japan, which could end up having a much more immediate effect on. Uh, the semiconductor industry and some of these crucial components which are in all of our iPhones and laptops. So what's going on there? So Japan has basically uh, is threatening to impose export restrictions on certain products that it sends to South Korea. South Korea needs these products for its semiconductor industry. Samsung in particular and LG uh, TV screens uh, really rely on these very high-tech uh, inputs. And Japan Japan is basically saying we're going to we're going to make it more difficult and expensive for you to get those products. Now a lot of people say this is in retaliation for this generations old dispute between uh, Japan and Korea dating back to the colonization of the Korean Peninsula. So what this seems to be is a bit of this of, of a creep of the Trump strategy of you know using trade tariffs export restrictions to achieve political uh, goals, uh, in this case, sort of retaliation for Korea in this long-running dispute. So uh, a lot of people we talk to see this as a real kind of uh, worrying sign when a country like Japan, an you know, industrialized country that you know, espouses free trade, starts to, starts to throw tariffs and uh, export restrictions around for political reasons. So uh, it's really something to watch. Yeah, and if we should re remember that the numbers involved here could be pretty large. I mean, the two Korean companies who've been most hammered by the Samsung and another company that's less well known, I guess, Hynix, um, they account for 60% of the world's memory chip making capacity. So that's they're sitting in all those iPhones and sitting in a lot of, uh, of laptops. So this is one of those funny ones we don't, it, it's sort of come out from left field. We're not, it's the U.S., uh, measures that are in the headlines, but that could end up having an impact on the global economy. Absolutely. And these two economies, South Korea and, and Japan, are already being buffeted by some damaging uh, trade numbers uh, from the U.S.-China dispute. So if you get them going at it with tariffs and re export restrictions, you, they could take it to a whole other level of, of you know, economic damage. There are so many signs to this to keep track of. We're still going to be keeping our eye out for potential uh, other winners, unexpected winners from uh, trade wars. I think Bangladesh is now uh, potentially on our list. And I guess we should remind people that there is now a newsletter that you're in charge of, Brendan, which we, we, anyone can sign up for, which uh, allows you to keep track of, of some of these. That's right. It's called Terms of Trade. And uh, we try to take a look and pull together all these disparate stories that are going on and try to connect all these dots uh, to make sense of, of what's really uh, complicated and uh, difficult to follow story. But uh, hopefully we can make it, uh, you know, a lot more understandable. Plenty of dots. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking again, Brendan, but thanks very much for that. Thanks, Stephanie. The former governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, used to say central bankers should aim to be boring. 
we found out this week that the next head of the European Central Bank isn't going to be boring. It's going to be the first woman, Christine Lagarde, now running the International Monetary Fund. But actually, most of the excitement recently around central bankers has not been about anything they've done. It's been about pesky politicians putting a lot of pressure on them and, in some cases, actually sacking them. Simon Kennedy runs all of our economic reporters for Bloomberg. I wanted to talk to you about it, Simon. Tell us what's happened in the last week. I mean, we had a a pretty, uh, what you might call, outrageous uh, Donald Trump tweet about the Federal Reserve chair. But on that same weekend, you also had the Turkish central banker being sacked. So, yeah, two two themes over the last uh, few days have have come to a, a fresh peak, if you like. Donald Trump again tweeting his disappointment in uh, Fed Chairman uh, Jerome Powell, who he, of course, uh, appointed to the job, suggesting the December rate hike that the uh, Fed introduced uh, should never have uh, taken place. And then just on the in the early hours of Saturday morning, you have President Erdogan in Turkey uh, firing his central banker, who has uh, has resisted cutting interest rates as uh, as deeply as the, uh, the the president has wanted there. So both in those two stories, you have a real uh, suggestion that the independent of central banks is in question. I guess what was, I mean, the, the, the tweet said something like, our biggest problem is the Federal Reserve. It doesn't have a clue. I, I guess the striking thing about both these cases, although it's, obviously the situation of the American central bank is very different from the Turkish central bank, but neither of them have caused a big market flutter. It seems to be, you can imagine in the past, if there'd really been a question mark about the independence of of the central bank, you would have had uh, at least bond investors react. And we really haven't seen that much of that. You've seen that in the lira, but in the US, uh, the market kind of shrugged it off. Uh, Jerome Powell's done a pretty good job of uh, communicating where he stands just uh, just today in testimony uh, in Congress talking about the importance of independence, but saying that that should be twinned with transparency, uh, trying to explain uh, what the uh, the Federal Reserve is up to. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Donald Trump is uh, is probably going to get his way, whether the Fed uh, acknowledges that or not. The, the, the political pressure may not pay off, but the economic pressure may pay off uh, with the Fed looking to cut rates uh, in July. I mean, that's what's quite striking is that you have, uh, although uh, the the Federal Reserve chairman and, and others would would be very clear that they're still independent and they're not listening to the, not reading the tweets or certainly not following following the advice. And I noticed that um, the Fed chair in his statement uh, to Congress had not previously talked about the independence of the central bank, but has mentioned it repeatedly since February, which seems like a bit of a um, reference to to the tweet. But despite all that, as you say, they have actually changed their tune dramatically almost since uh, the president started complaining about the interest rate rises. So it's, it's slightly awkward for Fed. Do you think it loses a bit of credibility from the perception that it might be reacting to him? A little bit. And uh, Joachim Fels, a global uh, strategist at PIMCO, made a, a similar point just the other day in saying that the Fed's in a a no-win situation. Either it uh, cut rates and uh, is, is viewed as, as suggested that uh, it's, it's, uh, it can bow to political pressure, or it leaves rates unchanged uh, and kind of stands tall against the White House, but in doing so perhaps uh, leaves the economy at risk. So it's, it's in a bit of a no-win situation, which, which leaves Jay Powell to kind of maintain this line that uh, uh, he'll do what's uh, in the interest of the, uh, of the uh, US economy, and uh, and repeat that he plans to stay the course. 
I was uh, I was struck with a very different perspective on this. I was just recently got back from from Russia, and there was a, a big conference that the Bank of Russia was holding, and it was striking that there was a lot of concern there that they all these conversations about oh what should the uh, the Federal Reserve shouldn't be so focused on inflation and uh, you know all the political pressure on the Federal Reserve and talk about other central banks needing to be more focused on growth and maybe even a bit less independent. That's bad news if you're the Russian central bank or any central bank in an emerging market economy that's still fighting the old battle, still has a fair bit of inflation to deal with and still has question marks about their independence. Um, But thanks, Simon. I think uh, we will no doubt be hearing more from the Fed and I hope more from you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insight into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review this show so it can reach more people. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, you can also follow at Economics on Twitter and also find me on at MyStephanomics. This episode was reported by Jeanette Newman and produced by Magnus Hendrickson and Scott Lambert. Special thanks to Brendan Murray, Simon Kennedy and Devin Leonard. Our executive producer is Scott Lamman, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.